This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to Pacific Review from ABC Radio Australia. I'm Nick Fogarty. Coming up, Guam launches its bid to join the Pacific Islands Forum in a move that could raise eyebrows in China. A relatively seamless polling day for Vanuatu as it goes to a snap election after just 10 days of campaigning and the future of Port Moresby's street food vendors in doubt after a new ban on street cooking. First, though, United States Territory is seeking to join the Pacific's top diplomatic body in a move likely to raise concerns in China. If successful, Guam's bid to join the Pacific Islands Forum could allow the US government to wield more power in the Pacific. But as Marion Farr reports, it won't be easy, with other Pacific leaders likely to be split on whether to allow it. It may be small in size, but the US territory of Guam has big aspirations. Guam wants to join the Pacific Island Forum to take its place in the community of Pacific people. Lieutenant Governor Josh Tenorio says the tropical island situated less than 3,000 kilometres southeast of Taiwan is seeking to join the Pacific's top diplomatic body, the Pacific Islands Forum. Home to two major US defence bases, Guam has been the subject of military threats from China and North Korea in recent years. What is happening on Guam certainly would be helpful for the other nations to understand and know. The move comes just weeks after the US hosted an historic summit of Pacific leaders. Dr Tarsisius Kabatalaka, an expert in Pacific geopolitics from the University of Hawaii, says Guam's inclusion in the forum would be a major coup for the White House. One could arguably say that the US would be in a much stronger position in terms of its influence in the region. He suspects that will make China very unhappy. I think it will be a huge concern for Beijing. China never had and doesn't have a colonial territory in the Pacific Islands, so it could not do the same kind of thing as the US. Dr Kabatalaka says Guam's push for PIF membership is also likely to cause a stir among Pacific countries. The question that will probably come up amongst foreign island countries is whether a representation by Guam would also mean a representation by the US. He fears that could lead to division within the regional body. Whether the membership of Guam would then cause some countries in the Pacific to say, I no longer want to be a member of this regional organisation. Once, only independent nations were allowed to join, but then the French territories of New Caledonia and French Polynesia gained membership, setting a precedent that Guam is keen to follow. Dr Tess Newton-Kane, who heads the Pacific Hub at Griffith University, says that could make things complicated. There are aspects of what the region as a whole wants to achieve and the processes it uses that make it difficult for these countries that don't have sufficient sovereign power to be able to enter into agreements. Do you think there will be a perception that the United States is pulling the strings or pushing for this behind the scenes rather than it being an independent sort of decision by Guam? Absolutely. I think it would be very naive to think anything other than that. But Lieutenant Governor Tenorio insists that's not the case. I want to make it clear that our government is not being utilised nor has been solicited by the United States federal government to be a part of the forum. Guam intends to formally submit its application by the end of this year. Marion Farr with that report. 
In Vanuatu's snap election, preliminary results are encouraging for at least one female candidate in a country that hasn't elected a single female MP since 2008. It was only a 10-day campaign leading into polling day, but the vote appears to have proceeded without any major glitches. Small delays were recorded at some booths as voters gathered to decide the fate of incumbent Prime Minister Bob Lohman. Tess newton Kane is the project leader at Griffith University's Pacific Hub, and I spoke to her about the reported delays. It's not totally surprising, and it has happened previously, you know, where we've had delays in polling stations opening, and then, you know, the, the sort of the follow-on from that is that voting hours do get extended. As you know, it's it's a it's a logistical challenge getting all the people and all the equipment and everything into the right place at the right time anyway. And obviously, given that it was a snap election, the um, all the, the electoral office and the electoral commission were obviously, you know, scrambling a little bit to get it done at all. But, uh, you know, I think if if that's all we have to worry about is a few delays and, and you know, the, the polls staying open a bit longer, then I think that's probably not a bad situation. We're a bit over 24 hours since um, the booths opened. Uh, what do the early results seem to be telling us? Well, they are very early and they're all unofficial, obviously. Um, So, you know, I'm just having a quick look at them now. A lot of, you know, recognisable names, a lot of names um, that were in the previous parliament, uh, you know, looking like they are currently um, doing well. I think the one that is that's standing out for me most is in Afate Rural. So there are five seats in that constituency. And based on these very early unofficial results, Julia King is is currently leading um, with 941 votes at this where I, where this spreadsheet was made. So you know that's that's a good a good start for her. Um, it's still too early to say whether she'll be able to to hang on, um, you know, because obviously it depends which boxes have been opened and, and the order in which that's done. But, you know, she's obviously got off to a good start. And as we know, currently or in the previous parliament, there were no women MPs. So if she were able to um, grab one of those seats in the Afate rural constituency, that would be a significant achievement. As you say, there there were no female MPs in the previous parliament. And indeed, there haven't really been for about 15 years. Um was there any hope, sort of realistic hope, that um, other female candidates might be elected out of the seven or eight who were running? There are certainly some extremely good candidates, including Doris Day Kenneth, who's a previous um, director of the the women's department and has, you know, is an extremely experienced um, public servant and would certainly be looking to uh, garner a lot of support. I think the one of the things that I think was um, an additional barrier or an additional challenge for women was that it was the snap election. So I think there were probably a few women that kind of had a plan for 2024 and, you know, obviously would be using next year as a key element of that to to get their profiles up and to get out and do the, the necessary work. And having that election brought forward so suddenly may have scuppered some of those plans or derailed some of those plans. So, you know, I think, um, you know, I'm not holding out a lot of hope for significant female representation. I think, you know, we'll have to wait and see what 2026 brings, assuming that we get a full parliamentary term this time and see what that brings in terms of people that are maybe looking at a more kind of, like say, more sort of strategic approach to taking this as a longer term project.
And on that issue of it being a snap election, Ralph Reganvanu also has said that that levelled the playing field a little bit as it might have given the incumbents less time to campaign as well. Do you think it's made a substantial difference and have the candidates really had time to campaign on substantial issues of policy? Well, I mean, I think it has obviously um, reduced the amount of campaigning time, but I think it's important to realise, you know, in in Vanuatu elections, similar to in Solomon Islands and and elsewhere in the Pacific, substantial policy is not really what political campaigning is about, particularly in rural areas where most of the votes are. There it's much more about uh, service delivery and resource sharing, you know, so how can uh, you know, what can a given candidate promise in terms of being able to bring back resources by way of development that might be infrastructure, that might be investment, that could be, you know, all sorts of things in order to support the development of a given community. So that's really where the the bulk of political campaigning happens. I guess the, the, the snap election, I think, um, does favour the incumbents in as much as they already have an established profile. People that were maybe seeking to enter Parliament for the first time would, like I say, would have been thinking 2023 would have been their year for making sure they're in their communities, talking to people, listening to people, you know, being able to have those conversations. And, and that's kind of all been really telescoped back into just the last few weeks. Do you expect Bob Lyman's prime ministership to survive this snap election? Nick, I don't make predictions about Vanuatu politics. It's a mugs game. That's Tess Newton-Kane, who's the project leader at Griffith University's Pacific Hub. Fiji's election date is yet to be announced, but across the country, young people are preparing to make their voices heard. They were the driving force behind the 2018 vote, and this year, experts say it will be no different. Yasmin Wright-Giddens in Suva with this story. For many voters in Fiji, this is only their second or third election. A lack of youth representation is an issue that has weighed on many voters' minds, with mixed views on how critical it is to democracy. Some members of parliament advocate on youth issues, but we do not see a youth present in parliament. I would just want an individual, a youth preferably, to be proactive and be active in the youth scene and just be vocal on youth issues in parliament. Young people, well, we, I would encourage young politicians to stand up, but they might not have the key experience that's needed. We've been in the political scene for too long. In Fiji, some of the political parties, they just raise some certain issues at that time the kind that really appeals to the Ituke people. Like for the Ituke parties, most of them just bring up land issues. Sometimes they also don't bring up education and youth. And I also think that they may not think it in an offensive way, but they're old. Their way of thinking might be outdated to the way of life in Fiji now. That's why. Penny Mapna Singer is one of the youngest provisional candidates running for election. He is vocal about the lack of youth representation in parliament saying he can represent youth in a way that current parties do not. Here in Fiji, you have a culture of silence. Yeah? When there's the elders tell you something, you do it, you follow. So I, I am standing because I think that if there's a youth that thinks, that thinks that they can do it, why not? It's different when a youth represents youths. They feel more comfortable of sharing their issues. It goes back to the culture of silence eh? <laughs> of the Pacific here in Fiji especially. 
He is running with the Unity Fiji Party and says he's determined to change the government's pattern of attracting young voters but spending the money elsewhere. Governments come when they do their elections. They come to the youths, engage with them, get them to vote for them. But then when it comes back to giving back to the youth, the youths are ignored. For someone to stand up for the youth and like look into youth problems and help youths, that's what we're lacking and that's what I feel like I'm standing for in these upcoming elections. Benny is familiar with barriers standing in his way. It's the reason why he's running for office. Before this, I was a flight attendant. So when I was flying, I used to serve business class and I'd serve diplomats and politicians and all, all these other dignitaries from other countries. And just having a conversation with them was really intriguing. Eh? So I'd talk to them about all these issues, economic, climate, and they'd talk to me about it. And I got so interested in it. And to the point where in 2019 I left and I came to study politics. So that's one point too that I'm trying to advocate on is the involvement of youths because youths are the future of the morals. The youth vote is a focus for political parties, with under 35s accounting for more than 60% of the population. On their mind are the recent COVID pandemic, education, employment, crime and health. As a USP student, the current government that is withholding the grant that is supposed to be given to our university. So yeah, maybe that that will be one of the key reasons. The key issues that I'll be focusing on is uh, education, youth employment, and cultural heritage and uh, arts, arts and music. Because I think these are important factors and sectors of our country that is lacking behind and being neglected by our leaders. So I think these are the key issues that I would focus on. In my own opinion, there's a lot of youths that are waiting for the upcoming election because of the government. They, um, they're thinking of, they think of this government have a lot to do with uh, bad uh, activities that involve the country. Aidan Cranny is a research fellow at La Trobe University, looking at youth leadership and engagement in the Pacific. He says one feature that stands out is the role of social media in politics. Across all platforms, uh, we see young people engaging in ways that they're not able to in everyday uh, civil society, in everyday politics, in the village, in their homes, etc. There is a small but growing cohort of what I refer to as critical civil society, and these are the young people who are very politically active. He says the growing wave of political engagement may show up in the election result. At a broader level, young people are concerned about the very nature of politics in their country. They grew up in a period of uncertainty and instability. They are referred to as coup babies because they were born during periods of non-democratic rule. And they are very concerned about the stability of their politics, the security of their democracy. The winds of change are blowing. This may not mean necessarily a change in government, but it does definitely reflect the fact that this looks likely to be a tighter election than we have seen in the past. And this could be quite a fraught and tumultuous period. As soon as the writs are issued, then we may see really interesting strategies and also stories dropping in the media. The election date may not be known. But the push to register Fijian voters is well underway, with a polling date set to be announced in the near future. Yasmin Wright-Gittens reporting there with production support from Angus Delaney. 
Yasmin and Angus are New Colombo scholars at the University of South Pacific in Suva. Now to Port Moresby, where a new ban on street cooking has vendors worried about their future. The local government says the ban will improve public health, but some experts are questioning its legality. Hugo Hodge with this report. On the streets of Port Moresby, Ellis Tamu is hard at work selling sausages, lamb flaps, banana and taro to hungry customers. When I sell food at the market, I earn a little bit of money to give to my children as lunch money. But a ban on cooking on open fire and selling home bottled drinks in public places has Ellis worried about her future. There's no government support. I don't have a husband that can look out for me. And it's a big city. So how will I live? The ban came into force after a social media video showing people washing reusable plastic containers in contaminated water went viral. Under the new rules, street vendors could be removed and their goods confiscated. Its impact could be wide-ranging, with 13% of women living in the National Capital District relying on the sale of cooked food for living. Women are literally the backbone of agriculture, food production and looking after the family. Dr Elizabeth Copel is the program lead for the Informal Economic Research Program at the National Research Institute. Even in urban centres, the formal employment sector is only small. The people can't survive without the informal economy in this country. Under the current laws, vendors can trade anywhere at any time, but it's caused problems with kitchens popping up on bus stops and road intersections. Alan Marner, president of PNG's Law Society, says there are no provisions for a blanket ban under the existing legislation. There are certainly provisions in the Act for case-by-case inspection of, by way of regulation of street vending and the like to make sure that minimum standards are complied with. But generally speaking, to suggest a blanket ban in the manner that is being suggested is arguably illegal. For the past eight years, government authorities have been reviewing the informal sector development control law. But Dr Copel isn't aware if changes to the legislation have been made and believes the National Capital District Commission, the NCDC, could be acting illegally. If they try to ban the sale of cooked food now, before the act uh, comes into effect, then the vendors, market vendors, whoever selling on the street, they can take NCDC to uh, be held accountable. So NCDC possibly cannot introduce any ban until uh, the new act and the new policy come into effect. Busa Jeremiah Winogo is a development economist and has seen multiple attempts to ban informal sector activities. In all those instances, the ban only provided a short-term solution to the problem that it aimed to tackle, and then it was quickly abandoned. A ban on buai, or betel nut, in 2013 because of litter and hygiene problems was later repealed after it sparked a black market to emerge in the capital. So far, Mr Mana hasn't seen anyone enforcing the new ban after it came into effect at the beginning of the month. I think recent experience demonstrates that there will be uh, such announcements, um, but in practical effect, we don't actually see uh, the ban take place. As for the vendors, Ellis Tumu says they have no other way to earn an income and will continue to sell cooked food. I don't have another way. I don't have any help at my side, so I'm continuing to sell food on the street. I don't have a husband. I have two young boys. I'm worried about my life 
and the future of my two boys, so I'm really suffering. Port Moresby street vendor Ellis Tumu ending that report from Hugo Hodge. You may have seen the photo circulating online of the Pacific Islands Forum Secretary-General Henry Puna and Fiji's Prime Minister Frank Bainimarama, both sporting aviator sunglasses. They were at the US Pacific Summit and the sunglasses were given to them and other leaders by US President Joe Biden, who wears them as something of a personal trademark. Henrietta McNeil from the ANU's Department of Pacific Affairs has been writing about the phenomenon known as fashion diplomacy, which is often deployed by Pacific leaders themselves. I caught up with Henrietta McNeil, who spoke about the symbolism behind the tactic. Yeah, so um, President Biden has been seen in the aviators and he's actually used it as a campaigning tool over here in the US. Um, it's pretty obvious in um, gifts and and other paraphernalia around around um, where he's either putting the aviators on or or they're showing, you know, vote Biden in the aviators. But I guess the a very uh, emblematic of of American um, strength, masculinity, the military, and particularly for for a leader who's been criticised as as weak and old. Um, this is a way of of showing youthfulness. But he's been wearing them since he was eighteen, so I think he wears them as part of his personal style as well as um, uh, reflective of of all of those um, American uh, ideals. So, if it is part of his personal style and he's been doing it for a long time, I guess that that lends it some extra authenticity as well and people might think it's not just a, a cynical ploy by him? Absolutely, yeah. He's he's well known for wearing the aviators. Um, and, and I think it does go beyond uh, having um, another fashion item that, that is just emblematic of a country. It's actually um, his personal style and very much about him um, and you can very much see that in in any pictures of him. You, quite a lot coming off um, Air Force One. You you see him wearing the the aviators, um, and that's that's very much his style. So it, we know that it's Biden because he's wearing the aviators. And of course, Henry Pooners tweeted a photo of himself and Frank Bainimarama wearing, as he called them, Biden aviators, given to them by Joe Biden at the U.S. Pacific Summit. So, what do Bainimarama and Puna? stand to gain from that fashion association? I mean, the, the tweet was a wonderful piece of, of fun um, after they'd been gifted those aviators and, and it was seen as celebrating a very successful meeting. They saw Biden as a friend. They share a lens um, in terms of they, they now could see the world on the same page. We saw the PIF 2050 strategy on the Blue Pacific Continent very much um, emulated in the text and so we could see a sharing of the same same worldview in, in that context. I don't think they would have posted that tweet had it been a, a terrible meeting. So I think it very much was celebrating um, a wonderful new friendship uh, with President Biden um, through this uh, US Pacific Summit. Are there examples where Pacific Island leaders have themselves started these kind of fashion diplomacy trends or, or even just used it as a one-off? I guess maybe the famous shirts at the APEC meetings or, or the ASEAN meetings, I think it is, uh, might, might be one example? Yeah, we see, we see um, group shirts at quite a lot of, of those um, Pacific but also international meetings like ASEAN or, or um, APEC. 
Um, and we definitely do see those in the PIF meeting where they have the shared photo where they're all united in the same style of shirt or the same colour. And, and that's really emblematic of, of being uh, united and, and sharing that regional unity. Um, we also saw um, Samoan Prime Minister Fiamme. Uh, she gifted Speaker Nancy Pelosi a say, the flower behind the ear, in her recent um, meetings with uh, Speaker Pelosi. Um, so that that might be the beginnings of of the next generation of of fashion diplomacy. I think the Pacific has so much wonderful fashion in the region um, through different countries' styles um, and and fashion shows, and and we are seeing that that coming to the fore. We've also seen foreign minister from New Zealand, Nanaia Mahuta, wear um, some wonderful LA or Bulla prints in her recent uh, visits to PNG and Fiji. Um, and so I'd really like to see fashion diplomacy come more to the fore in those uh, bigger engagements. What I'd love to see is President Biden in a LA or bullish shirt, although keeping that substance, which is also required in the discussion, but it would be it would be wonderful to see. Henrietta McNeil, who's a PhD candidate at the ANU's Department of Pacific Affairs. And that's it from Pacific Review. I'm Nick Fogarty. Thanks for listening and do join us again at the same time next week for more news and views from around the Pacific.